What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Here at Rachel's World, we define literacy very broadly. Understanding that literacy is about anything we do to communicate with or interact with our world. So reading, writing, thinking, speaking, and listening are all parts of the literacy process. So today, let's talk a little bit about listening. I think we all know that being a good listener is an important skill. This is so true that the common core standards that have been adopted in most states include listening as part of the English language art standards. Here, children are asked to learn about listening as part of the communication process by taking turns so you can listen to others and listening closely so you can ask and answer questions. Listening is really part of being a good communicator, but being a good listener is not just about the communication process. It's also about having good social skills. Listening is just a part of having good manners, and it helps people to know that we care about them and want to be their friends. Helping children to learn and understand these social aspects of listening are also an important part of their literacy development. At the very basic level, a good listener is someone who looks at a person while they're speaking, does not interrupt, and who pays attention to what is being said. Certainly, as with all literacy endeavors, teaching listening skills to children is a very complex process, which is difficult to break down in the short time we have here. But certainly, one of the best ways to teach listening skills is to be good listeners ourselves. Modeling the good manners of listening as we communicate with our children and other adults can go a long way to helping children understand how to be good listeners themselves. For other resources, check out books like Teaching Children to Listen or look for other resources aimed at teachers or other professionals that will help provide fun activities and strategies to help your children develop the critical skill of listening. What is a graphic novel? It's a form that is becoming popular these days. Today on Worlds Awaiting, Jean Luen Yang, a graphic novelist, introduces us to this medium and shares his experiences of creating two award-winning novels. Jean visits with Rachel about his journey from reading comic books as a youth to his current vocation as a cartoonist and graphic novelist. He is the creator of American-Born Chinese, the first graphic novel to win the Prince Award, which is the American Library Association's annual honor for Best Young Adult Book. At present, Jean Luen Yang is the 2016 Library of Congress National Ambassador for Young People's Literature. Here's Rachel with Jean. We're chatting on the phone with Jean today, who is an extraordinary graphic novelist. Welcome, Jean. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I am really excited to talk to you more about your work. I think what you do is so wonderful and so unique and adds a wonderful perspective to our understanding of what graphic novels are and what children's literature is in general. So give us a little bit of a start here. Define for us what you think a graphic novel is to help our listeners get a sense of what you you feel like you create? <laughs> well, um, 
you know, you know, graphic novel is is kind of a funny term because it doesn't totally describe everything that we call graphic novels in an accurate way. Uh, the the story that I've heard about this term is that um, there was a, a cartoonist by the name of Will Eisner, who is one of the most influential cartoonists in the American comic book market. Uh, he drew a comic book called The Spirit in the 1940s, which was highly influential. He was one of the first cartoonists to bring cinematic storytelling techniques into the comic book art form. Uh, and then later on, a few decades later, he drew this comic book about that was based on his own childhood. It was about um, these kids growing up in a Jewish neighborhood in New York, and he shopped up around to these different publishers. He told them, man, I got, I got this comic book about these Jewish kids. Would you like to publish it? And everybody turned him down. And then he called up those same publishers again, and he said, I have this graphic novel about these Jewish kids growing up in New York, and he was able to, to get a publisher. So from the beginning, the term graphic novel um, was kind of meant to to separate comic books from the genres that have dominated it for, for dominating them for, 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 you know, for decades in American culture. So from superheroes and from funny animals. Um, so, so really um, in a lot of ways, comic book and graphic novel, at least in the beginning were, were kind of um, synonymous, but, but nowadays I think um, that, this is, this is something that cartoonists argue about all the time. The way I think about it is uh, a graphic novel really is just any comic book that's thick enough to get a spine, you know, to, to be able to sit on a library shelf. That's a wonderful definition. I think that this is a tricky term to kind of put our minds around sometimes. And I really appreciate that definition, Gene. I think that helps our listeners understand a little bit of the history of this wonderful genre and also the focus of it. So how did you go about getting started in making graphic novels? I, I grew up a comic book reader. I started reading comic books when I was in the fifth grade. Um, and when I was growing up, you know, we didn't have the diversity of of stories in this format that we do now. So pretty much all, all I could find were, were superhero comics and funny animal comics, you know, and that's why I grew up reading. Um, eventually, as I got a little bit older, I was able to find some independent and underground comic books. Um, a lot of them were autobiographical. And, uh, and all the way through, I just uh, became more and more aware of the potential of this medium. Then, right around early college, I read this book called Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. Scott McCloud is, he's almost like a professional comic book nerd. And Understanding Comics is a graphic novel about how graphic novels work. So he really breaks down the way the, the visual language of this, you know, uh, of, of this format works. And, uh, and that book kind of blew my mind. You know, that, blew, that, that book really separated um, the the medium from the type of story. So that, that really made me aware that um, comics, you know, graphic novels, could pretty much carry any kind of story, convey any kind of story that I wanted them to convey. And, uh, and I think without that book, I, I don't think I would be a, a cartoonist today. 
That's a wonderful influence. I think a lot of authors and illustrators find that kind of progression where they are interested and then they see how the form works and then move into it. But the thing that interests me the most is the fact that this really is a visual and a textual form that integrates. So even as a boy, when you were reading comics and now as you're writing your own graphic novels, what is it about that combination of text and illustrations that you think really grabs something or conveys something? Something in a way that either just illustrations or just text really doesn't do. Will Eisner uh, talks about how, you know, he's not an awesome illustrator and he's not an awesome writer. And in comics, he can use one to cover up his weaknesses on the other. He's wrong about that because he actually is really amazing at both. But I definitely feel that way too. You know, I feel like in a lot of ways, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm kind of average when it comes to uh, illustration, and I'm kind of average when it comes to pure prose. And uh, by combining the two, I can, I can kind of use one to leverage the other. Uh, but even beyond that, I, I think graphic novels, um, Will Eisner talks about, I'm sorry, uh, Scott McCloud talks about this in Understanding Comics. Um, you know, with this, you have these pictures and you have these words, and the relationship between the pictures and the words can get really interesting, can get really complex. You know, um, sometimes you can have them reinforce each other. Other times you could have them actually kind of fight each other and contradict each other. And, uh, and in that way, you can almost make your reader question what is truer. Is, is what we see truer or is what we read truer? Um, in some of the best graphic novels, you'll see this, um, this sharing of narrative responsibility between pictures and words. And, and what can happen is, you know, I just think that words and pictures, they have very different ways of conveying information. They're very different ways of getting at human emotion. Uh, the way I like to think of it is, you know, when you try to convey emotion through words, often you can get things that are more subtle. You can get your reader to feel more subtle emotions. Uh, whereas when you go through pictures, um, it's almost like putting an emotion directly in your reader's gut, um, you can bypass their brain, and the emotions are much more visceral and vivid. I love that image because I think that that connection to the emotions and how how that conveys through the text and the pictures is really powerful. And I find that really powerful in um, your novels, Boxers and Saints. I think that that, for me, is one of the things that you do so well in those books is you're able to take that emotion of the events and the people that were involved in those events and convey them so much more powerfully within that context. So do you think about that when you're writing and illustrating? Do you do you play around with how those emotions go, maybe changing it from words to pictures or pictures to words if, if you don't feel like it's giving the right emphasis? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I do. Uh, I... Um... You know, when I'm writing the script, uh, it, it depends on the project, but, but um, often my projects will start in script form, which is it almost looks like a screenplay. It's not as rigidly formatted as a screenplay, but it almost looks like one. And even there, even when I'm only dealing with words, I'm thinking about what the pictures are going to look like in the final product, and I'm thinking about whether or not that information belongs in the words or belongs in the pictures. And that I think that balance is probably kind of tricky. So how how do you revise and edit as you move forward to make sure that that you achieve what you feel is that perfect balance? 
some of it is gut for sure. Some of it is just I, I, I go with my gut. Um, and I also rely on a, a set of data readers. So at, at some point in my process, I will create um, thumbnail, uh, like a thumbnail version of the entire book. And that, that just means that I do small sketches of what every page looks like. They're really rough. They're not pretty looking at all. They're barely legible. But I'll take these thumbnails and I'll send them out to uh, a group of my friends. Some of them are, are cartoonists. Some, some of them are, are other things. One of them is my brother, who's a medical doctor. So he's a good Asian son. But they will, uh, you know, they'll, they'll read, read these thumbnails and they'll give me feedback about what works and what doesn't. And I'll rely pretty heavily on what they tell me. I love that sense of feedback because I think sometimes, especially young writers and illustrators, don't realize what a collaborative effort this is. This really isn't just about you sitting there writing and illustrating and then sending it out. It it very much becomes that collaborative effort. As we close here, could you just give us maybe one or two tips that you would give to kids out there who maybe want to be like you? They want to grow up and be like you someday and write their own books or illustrate their own books or write graphic novels. What are one or two tips that you would give to these kids to help set them on the right path? One is, is develop a, a habit of creation. Uh, regardless of what you want to do, whether it's writing novels or doing comic books or making music, create a habit of creation where you set aside some time on a regular basis to, to, to work on your craft and, uh, and just stick to that. Like get, get your friends or get your mom or get somebody to help you stick with that. And then two is don't ever let perfection get in the way of completion. You know, in the beginning, I think all of us have this critic that tells us what we're creating is terrible you got to just find a way of shutting that down and, and getting to the finish line, finishing that novel, finishing that song, finishing that graphic novel. Perfect way to end. Thank you so much, Gene, for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, our pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Rachel Wadham talking with award-winning graphic novelist Gene Luen Yang about what his process is in creating novels. You're listening to Worlds Awaiting. Books and bullying might be seen as an odd word pair, but anyone who remembers encountering a bully in school or in childhood knows from personal experience that a safe environment facilitates better learning. Associate Professor Melissa Heath and graduate student Katie Smith, both in BYU School of Psychology, join Rachel today to talk about a significant study they are pursuing. Their concern relates to bullying in the schools and approaches they have developed in combating it. The idea is to build resilience and teach coping skills to our children. Here's Rachel with Melissa and Katie. We're in studio today with Melissa and Katie, and we're going to address a very important topic. I know that it's a topic that a lot of of families uh, deal with and have some questions about. So let's talk a little bit about bullying. Um, So tell us, Melissa, you've done some research on bullying. So kind of give us an overview of, of the issue of bullying and maybe some steps that we're taking to help combat it. Well, Initially, when I got interested in bullying is when um, some of the schools were required 
to have some type of bullying policy and to address bullying. And I think bullying is something that is common to every civilization at every socioeconomic level. It's around the world. And it might be expressed in a little bit of different ways, but it's still the same type of thing. And in in the United States, we find that approximately 30% of children experience bullying. And some say as high as 40% might experience bullying. And when you think about bullying, there's three, we call it the three Ps. It's power, pain, and persistence. And for bullying, one of the things that we often confuse is for the power differential, it doesn't have to be size or physical power. It can be mental power. It can be social power, things like that, that might be hard for a teacher to notice. Um, Then the pain means emotional because I think sometimes – You remember as a kid, they'd say, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never harm me, when in fact, that's very untrue. Actually, words hurt much more than being punched. Um, And then the persistence is where bullying occurs over time. It's not a one-time situation. Those are the three things that they look at, the definition of bullying. Well, and I know, Katie, you've you've worked on a project where you did some public service announcement kinds of things Mm -hmm. with kids with bullying. So talk a little bit about some of the things that you found in there that you think uh, might be helpful for people to understand about bullying. Yeah, last year I worked on a campaign. It was called Hashtag End Bullying. And so we um, collaborated with some different organizations such as the Friend Movement and Pacer.org. And we ended up interviewing about 15 kids in the Los Angeles area who had experienced bullying. And we put together this short PSA built uh anti-bullying video um, in which they both shared their stories, but then they shared with kids about how they were able to overcome it. And I think that's a really important message to share with kids because um, I don't know if we'll ever be able to fully stop bullying, but I think teaching that resilience and teaching kids coping skills in which they can overcome that is is really important. And it's one of the main reasons I decided to become a school psychologist because I saw the pain and the hurt that these kids experienced as they were telling their stories. Um, But then I was able to see the other side of it, see the confidence and the self-esteem that they had developed in order to overcome those things and hearing them talk about their parents and their teachers and those other people in their lives that helped them build those skills and help them become the people that they were um, was just such a powerful message that I learned and wanted to share with other people and, and hopefully being able to become one of those individuals who can help a student who is experiencing that and help them build that resilience um, so that they can be strong. So, Melissa, what what do you think we should do as adults to help kids build this strength? I think one of the things that we can do is in each school have an expectations of how teachers would respond because in interviewing children, one of the common things we find is that um, Children say teachers really don't notice when bullying's going on, and teachers don't address it when they do even know it's going on. It's kind of like we found that a lot of teachers actually think that bullying is part of life and kids need to be able to stand up for themselves, which in an ideal world, that might be a good idea. But in most of the situations, I think just an adult saying, stop, this is not appropriate. In our classroom, we're kind to one another. Or demonstrating a kindness on their own and letting the child know that what's going on is not appropriate, I think is very important for parents and teachers to do. Some of the best experiences that children have had who look back on an experience of bullying is saying that it helped when 
a friend said something or when, especially when an adult, like a teacher, uh, said, you know, I value you, um, what that person's doing is not kind and that's not right, and then to do something to stop those kind of situations. I think it also helps for kids to understand that they can respond in ways. Um, There's a book by Trudy Ludwig, My Secret Bully, which I think is a really good book about relational bullying, where a girl is saying things that aren't true, being mean, saying mean things about her friend. They used to be friends. And then the mother and the daughter have a talk, and she then is convinced that this girl, that's not the way you treat a friend. She then addresses that with her bully friend and says, what are you doing that for? Uh, That's not how friends treat friends. Basically, that's how that book is. And in the end, it's not happily ever after. It's like, that girl is not being a true friend, and she wants to not really uh, play with her now. So I think being real about bullying and just saying some people really are, are not being a good friend, and until they do become a good friend, it's probably a person you don't want to associate with. Those things are hard for kids, really hard for kids to, I think, do that. There's another book, too, that's really good called Each Kindness by Jacqueline Woodson. It's beautifully illustrated, and it talks about a little girl who's new in as she moves to the school, and she's a little white girl, and most of the children in the classroom are black, so it's kind of an interesting shift. The little white girl is poor, never has any new clothes, everything's hand-me-downs, and they start by just taunting her, you know, never knew uh, never knew clothes, and they just say stuff just really mean to the little girl. And in the end, the, the little girl doesn't come back. She moves away. And the book kind of ends there. Um, and so we then tell the kids, well, how could that have been prevented? What could you do to help a, a new person in the classroom feel welcomed? In one of the classrooms, I did this as a lesson plan, and it was really fun because one of the girls in the classroom was new just that week. And so she said, I really appreciate our class because, you know, and she named off several of the girls in the classroom. They invited me at lunch to sit with them. They invited me at the playground. And it was like really a nice way to say, wow, our students in this classroom are doing really well in including someone and not pushing them away. That's really great. I love those kinds of success stories because it does, it takes a lot of courage to Mm -hmm. speak up. And these students you were working with in your program, how much courage it took for them to stand up and say, look, this happened to me, but I made it through on the other side. So how do we how do we help kids develop that kind of courage to stand up? What do you think, Katie? Yeah, I definitely think it takes time. And I think it takes teaching them that they're not alone in this, that other kids are experiencing this as well. There are lots of different organizations which, you know, have kids who are also standing up and sharing their stories about being bullied and sharing the feelings that they've had because a lot of these kids have experienced, you know, suicidal thoughts, helping them realize that they're not alone and that you specifically are there to help support them and, you know, sharing with them, you know, all the things that you think are great about them because all these kids, you know, they're wonderful kids. And so building that self-awareness within them and helping them build that confidence and really, you know, building their self-esteem. And I think that's great. The books you've mentioned as well, these as videos are really great ways to, to help kids kind of expand their viewpoint and mm-hmm. see things from from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So what what is one tip? I, I know that that's difficult, but if you could say to all parents and adults out there, what is what is the one thing that you would like them to hear about this topic that you think that they could implement or do differently that would just make the biggest difference in the kids of in lives of kids that are bullied? 
Well, I know one thing that I saw. Uh, in, it was in a we were doing a as an assembly for bully prevention, and one uh, this very confident woman uh, came to the microphone and she said, "I just want to tell you a story." And she told a personal story about herself, about how when she was in seventh grade, she got off the school bus and kids on the school bus had said she looked ugly and then that followed her into school ugly dress ugly dress and they were chanting and so she started to cry she went to the restroom and this very shy girl came in the restroom after her and said just know that what they're they're mean and what they're saying is not true you look very nice and that shy person taking the courage to do that i think parent everybody has a story like that that they know and Sharing that story with children, I think, is very powerful to say you can make a difference in the life of someone just by being kind and noticing them that they're, they're might someone's bullying them and privately telling them, you know, you're so much more than that. Don't let that get you down and helping them know that they're not alone, too. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think sometimes hard topics like this we don't want to talk about because they are hard topics. Mm-hmm. But that just makes it that much harder. The more we talk about it, the more open we are about it. It makes a huge difference. What about you, Katie? What What's one tip that you'd leave <laughs> us with? One tip um, that I would say, I think constantly um, complimenting your child and letting them know that you love them and why you love them um, to really build up their self-esteem and help them recognize the things that they're good at um, and the talents that they have so that those are the things that they can focus on and so that they can realize, you know, what everyone else is saying isn't true, but that you are a constant support in their life and that you constantly love them no matter what. And these are what these are all the reasons why you love them as well. That's a perfect way to end, uh, show, showing love and helping people learn kindness through our stories and conversations. Very important way to build up our children and help them not fall victim to this very sad thing that is often going on in school. So thank you, ladies, for discussing this important topic with us today. Thank you. On Worlds Awaiting, we've been enjoying a visit with Professor Melissa Heath and graduate student Katie Smith talking with Rachel Wadham about ways we can arm our children against bullies by teaching them resilience and coping skills. Now, as we often do on Worlds Awaiting, we finish the show with comments from a few people who go all warm and fuzzy when recalling favorite books from childhood. Clara Goodwin of the Worlds Awaiting team visits with them. What is your favorite childhood book and why? I would have to say the green eggs and ham one (laughs) particularly because it has a movie that I used to watch about it as a kid and so I have more of a visual in my head of how the book went and I liked it. I would have to say Oh the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss because it's really creative and imaginative and it teaches children how to explore and just be open to ideas about the world. Um, my favorite childhood book would be The Giving Tree, because um, I just think it's so cute how the tree loves the little boy and gives everything she has, and I'm always, even when I was little, I was just like, oh, that's a cute tree, so I always love that, and I think it shares a good story and like teaches some good principles. What is your favorite book from childhood, and why? Old Turtle, because I really like turtles. Ella Enchanted, because... It made me think about an imaginary world that I didn't know before. Ooh, um, probably The Giving Tree, because my mom would read that to me all the time. And I guess every time I read it now, I always get like this little nostalgic feeling. And it's like a really bittersweet story. 
So I don't know, it was like a childhood story that kind of I loved when I was a kid, but it definitely carries to adulthood. What is your favorite book from childhood and why? It's from a series. It's called Sweet Valley High. So it's a, it was a series on TV, um, but I really enjoyed like reading it. At least that's the one that sticks out to me. Reading about it and talking about it with my friends. Like, oh my gosh, can you believe so and so did this? But yeah, <laughs> so it's called Sweet Valley High. What is your favorite book from childhood and why? Favorite book from childhood. Um, oh, that's a good one. I think my favorite book was probably Holes. And I think it was just because it was this whole new idea that I'd never thought of before. And we read it as a class. And so we all just like got to enjoy it together. And it's something that's always just stuck with me. So my favorite book growing up was a book called We Were Tired of Living in a House. And it's about this group of kids. And they take a frog who is a particular friend. And they go and live in a bunch of different spots. And in the end of the book, they finally realize that their favorite spot to live in was their house. And so it's a really fun story, and I really like it. It's a classic. I would have to say Harry Potter, because who wouldn't want to live in Harry Potter world? I mean, you get butterbeer, you can do magic, hang out with Dumbledore, so definitely Harry Potter. Favorite books from childhood on Worlds Awaiting. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.